Hey, my name is Philip Craig. I'm the pastor here at Aria Church. Thanks so much for joining us. I hope this podcast empowers you, hope it fuels your faith, and hope it impacts your life. Enjoy the message. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be, uh, to be back with you again. Um, I, I always say these days, it's, it's good to be here, but it's good to be anywhere at my age, to be honest with you. I actually got scammed last week because I target old people. And uh, I, uh, but I turned the tables on him. He said to me, we've got all your passwords. And I said, thank goodness. Let me get a piece of pen and paper and write them down. I was a joke. Oh, you, you get that? Uh, that didn't really happen. I just made that up. But you can imagine it happening, can't you? Um, I, at the beginning of the year, uh, when I was praying about the year ahead, what I was going to speak on, I felt the Lord say to me to talk about Jesus this year. And so that's what I'm going to do this morning. So we're going we're gonna to turn to uh, John's Gospel, Gospel according to John, chapter 21. Uh, and read from verse 1. I've called it the barbecue on the beach. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, well, we'll go with you. So he went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? The word there is lads, actually. It's not, it sounds kind of, you know, like a friends. You know, it's, it's hey boys. Uh, it's a slightly rougher word. No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, the disciple whom Jesus loved is John, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter uh, heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat, dragged the net ashore, and it was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Well, they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. 
The risen Christ, don't need those. The risen Christ stands before them. This is the same Jesus, remember, who was with them for three and a half years. He was the same Jesus who walked the dusty roads, who healed the sick, who changed water into wine, who gave sight to the blind and raised the dead. The very same Jesus stands before them. The very same Jesus is alive today. He's the risen Christ. And you know what he does? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And as you slept last night, he was interceding for you. It's incredible to believe that Jesus did not go off somewhere as a disembodied spirit. But a human being is in control of the universe today. The risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's the third time that he appears to the disciples. And after the resurrection, Jesus, Peter has a special encounter with Jesus. There's probably excitement about the fact that Christ was alive. And Peter was the, one of the first to discover this and, and was part of all the other times that Jesus had appeared to his disciples. But we've got to know that nothing, something wasn't right. There's confusion here. There's loss. They're bewildered. They've seen the Lord, but they're a little bit disorientated. It says it's night. John, in the whole of John's gospel, you get two things happening. Contrasts. And you get, you get comparisons. You get a sign in the natural is a sign in the spiritual. So it's night here. It's a sign to us that the disciples are still in a fog. And it's only when Jesus appears, it's early in the morning. It's a sign in the spiritual. A lot of talk about fish. Ordinary scene, fishermen, a man on a beach cooking food, very unspectacular. And Peter goes back to, to, do, to what he knows doing, which is fishing. I don't know, maybe he wanted to play it safe. The excitement of the last three years, he wondered what it was all about, and maybe he'd blown it. Remember, he denied Jesus three times, not quietly, but publicly. Maybe he thought there was no way back. Now, before we get to Peter's restoration, let's have a look at, the, at the, some of the points in the, uh, the passage. They fished all night, and they caught nothing. These were the experts, but they fished all night and caught nothing. Why? Because Jesus wasn't at the center of their fishing. Every time you see a miracle in the New Testament, it points to who the personhood of Jesus. He is the Son of God. It shows us again that He's no ordinary man, but He is God incarnate in the flesh. Remember, they're the experts, but you'll catch nothing if Jesus isn't at the center of it. And it teaches me something else, that there's no part of your life that Christ isn't interested in. Very interesting, because we, we kind of think, you know, we're a small cog in this universe. But the wonderful thing is that the God who is both transcendent other than us is imminent. He's close to us, and he's interested in your life. I, I discovered this when I, I became a Christian. I live with my grandparents, and uh, I was uh, 16 and doing what they used to call O-levels. They're called GCSEs today. And the one thing I couldn't get was maths. I was absolutely terrible. Particularly, I remember, it's so long ago, but it sticks in my mind. It was simultaneous equations. Anybody ever heard of a simultaneous equation? I wake up every day and go, thank you, Lord. I don't have to use simultaneous equations today. But I remember, I was studying for all of it, and I'd failed it twice. I'd done it twice and failed it twice. 
And I was working at it, and my grandfather came down, and, and for, he was in bed, and he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm working at this thing. It's called Simultaneous Equations. And he said this to me, have you prayed about it? I said, well, can you do that? He says, well, he says, who do you think created Simultaneous Equations? I said, well, the devil, obviously. <laughs> and he says, well, you try and pray about it. And I prayed about it. And you know something? I got, I passed the next, I, the next time I did the O-level, I got it. I got it, I'll tell you what, I got a four, it was, you, those days there were grades, one to six, six was the lowest pass you could get. I got a six, 40 to 45, but you know something? I got it. Yes. And I think this is really important because whatever stage of your life that you're on or, or, or your journey, you know, or wherever's happening to you, put, you put, put the focus on Jesus and what you'll find is that God will show up in unexpected places and in unexpected ways. I've discovered this. If it's important to you, it's important to the Lord. Number two, there were 153 fish caught. I, I think this is the strangest thing, that in this incredible scene, somebody's counting the fish. A one, a two, a three. It's a strange one to me. And, and uh, they, they didn't recognize him when Jesus, uh, when they saw him. And then he tells them to throw the net on the other side, and they get this incredible haul of fish, which, of course, remember, a sign in the natural is a sign in the spiritual. It's pointing to the question or the, the command that Jesus gives to Peter, feed my sheep. In Acts chapter 2, what happens? 3,000 people, a great haul of people are brought in. So in John, you get this, a contrast, sign in the natural, a sign in the spiritual. It's hard to believe that someone is actually counting the fish. There's 153. Now, I, I've looked this up, and there are so many weird things are said about this. Some, somebody has suggested that there were 153 species of fish in the Lake of Galilee in those days. Somebody has suggested there were 153 known races around the world. But I've come up with this one. See, <coughs> see if, you can, uh, if you stay with me. If you take the 12 tribes of Egypt, uh, of Israel, multiply by the Ten Commandments, add the 12 disciples, add the seven churches in Revelation, plus the seven days of creation, plus the ten plagues of Egypt, minus the Trinity, and you get 153. <laughs> now, now that, honestly, I think that's as good as anybody else's. Stick to that formula, and you won't go long. But it does tell you this, and it's interesting. I, I, as some of you know, I'm a, a chaplain at a, at a well-known football club in, uh, in, uh, in Ireland. And uh, what I've discovered is that you can have all the success in your life, but if you don't make Jesus the center of your life and miss his purpose for your life, it'll never be enough to satisfy you. You can get everything you want in life, but if Christ isn't in the middle of it and he's not part of your life, the center of your life, you'll never be satisfied. Uh, it says that, uh, again, a contrast. You remember Peter and John. What happens? John. John understands. Peter acts. You get that all the time. John understands. Peter acts. Peter jumps out of the boat immediately and uh, runs to the, or gets to the shore. You've got to love him. I, I think he wore his heart on his sleeve most of the time. But Jesus plans the barbecue on the beach. I, I, again, you know, he, he, bought, he buys the fish. Or did he catch? Where did he get the bread from? Did he go? 
Now, I obviously bought that. There's, there's, there's lots of stuff here. It's, it's incredible. But it's an ordinary scene. Jesus, a man cooking fish and bread upon the beach. And, and they begin to talk after they've eaten. It's good. Jesus says, we need to eat something first, lads. You've been out all night. And then he begins to talk to Peter. He doesn't ignore it because there's, a, there's an elephant in the room. What is it? Well, Peter, after having said, Lord, I will never let you down, he denies the Lord three times. And I think that the Lord has to let us know that whatever's going on in your life, Jesus wants to draw you near and restore you and forgive you and heal you. There's nothing that you have done. There's nothing that you've said in peace. They might have consequences in this life, but there's nothing that you've done that Jesus can't forgive. And he draws Peter close and he asks him a threefold question. Again, remember, it's a threefold question, responds to a threefold denial. Peter denies him three times. Jesus asks him three questions. They're round a fire. Was Jesus taking him back to the night? Remember the night in which Jesus was betrayed? What happens? There's a fire. And they warm themselves on a cold night. Jesus brings Peter around the fire. To remember him, he recreates the scene because Jesus wants him to know that the two things are related. It's one simple meal, and Jesus restores Peter's relationship with himself. And, and I think it's really important because Christianity is, it's all about God reaching us and restoring our relationship with him. He's in the business of restoring broken relationships, first with God and then with each other a carpenter and a fisherman sitting around a fire. I love it that he doesn't say to him, hope you're ashamed of yourself. He doesn't say, are you sorry? He doesn't say, I want to see an act of contrition or repentant. He simply assumes, first of all, that Peter knows that he loves him. In fact, John actually says this when he writes his letter. He says, we love him because he first loved us. And I have no doubt that as Peter sat before Jesus, he knew that Jesus loved him. And I think it's a really, a really big issue, actually. As I, the older I've got, the more I discover that uh, people don't realize how much Jesus loves them. It's, it's funny, in, a, in the New Testament days, remember, they didn't, they only had, the, the Jews only had the Old Testament. Uh, but let's be honest, for a lot of people couldn't read or write in the Gentile world. Many of them were slaves. How did they know that they were loved by God? You can't go. Now, if you said to me today, how do I, Paul, how can I know I'm loved by God? I'd get the Bible down. And I'd flick it open and I'd say, well, here's what the Word of God says. Well, I, I love it that Peter, or, or Paul rather, in Romans says this to us. Can you imagine? Let's just take ourselves slightly, you know, a slightly, a, a little curve here. Imagine you're a slave in Rome. Remember, in these days, Rome had a million people, of whom a quarter were slaves. A quarter of Rome were slaves in those days. Can you imagine having an encounter with the living Christ? Asking him to come in and uh, into your life. 
How would you know that it really happened? Here's what Paul writes when he writes to the Romans. He says this in Romans chapter 5, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our, heart, into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What happened was this. When you have an encounter with Christ, there's an outpouring of love in your life. You know that God has loved you. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is poured out upon your life. And in Romans 8, Paul, re-emphasizing it again, he, 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 says, he says this, The Spirit himself testifies that we are children of God. How were they to know that they really had been adopted into God's family? Because the moment that you say yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit testify, tells you, I'm a child of God, and God's love has been poured into my life. Do you know that God loves you in an incredible way? I don't know about you, but it was one of the great realizations of my life. When I was a much younger man, I went to speak at the Methodist Central Hall in Belfast, which doesn't exist anymore. And uh, they asked me uh, to speak to a group of homeless men. And the deal was that if they listened to the talk, they could get soup and sandwiches. And the men sat in front of me, and I was about 21 at the time, and I remember looking at them and Honestly, they were, they were a bad smell. They were homeless people. And I gave them a really hard time about how they were sinners and needed to repent. And God was going to judge them if they didn't sort their lives out. And I felt really good about myself. And when I'd finished and the men shuffled off to get their soup and sandwiches, the Methodist minister, who, I, who actually was a couple of years ahead of me at school, he said, Paul, thanks for coming tonight. He says, there is just one thing. When somebody says that to you, there's a stinger coming, okay? You always remember that. And he said to me, he said, he said see the men that you were talking to tonight? Uh, he said, they have no doubt. They feel valueless. They feel worthless. They know they've made a mess of their life. But the thing that they do not know is this. It's a God who loves them and gave his son to die for them. No matter who you are, Lord, would you let your love come upon each one of us today? Would you let us know that we're loved and we're valued and we're incredibly precious to God? Peter knows that Jesus loves him. That's why Jesus begins with a question, do you love me, Simon? And, and I, an interesting one here, he, he uses the word Simon but not Peter. And he says, do you love me more than these? There's been great debate about who these are. But actually, I, I, I'm pretty convinced that Jesus is taking him back. He uses the name that he had before Jesus changed his name. And I think he's pointing to the boats and the fish. What he's saying to him is this, Peter, do you want to go back to your old life? Are you going to go back? Do you love me more than these? I think it's a real challenge because I, I, would, I would say this to you this morning, very simply, don't go back. Every time someone says yes to Jesus on a daily basis, it has an incredible impact. I'm thankful for great aunts, great, great aunts of mine who got converted in 1859 in the Ulster Revival and had a public house, as they called it in those days, in Carrie Duff, where I come from. 
And it was in the house that I was brought up in. And when they encountered Christ, they called the whole village out and they poured every drop of alcohol down the drain. Now, some of you may say, what a waste. What were they thinking about? But you know something? Because my great-great-aunt said yes to Jesus. It had a ripple effect on our family. And their, 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 grand, their great-nephew got saved. Their great-great-nephew got saved. My grandfather. And my mother came to Christ. And I came to Christ. Every time someone says yes to Christ, it has a ripple effect through the generations. You see, when Joe and Edith said yes to Christ, it wasn't just about them. It was about their family. And now it's about their grandchildren. When you say yes to Jesus every day, you don't go back. I don't know what you've been thinking about this week. Do not go back. Jesus asked them three times, do you love me? Now, I don't want to make too much of this here. Some of you will know what I'm going to say here because it, it's, a, it's, a, it's pre preached on quite, well, it has used to be preached on quite a bit. But when they, when, they, when they translated the original into Greek, which is where our translation comes from, there are different words that are used to describe love. In the, uh, Greek is a very precise language. Hebrew is imprecise. Greek is very precise. So in the Greek language, you have different words for love. You've got phileo, which is brotherly love. It's a great, it's a great word. It's affectionate. It includes the word to kiss. It's, it's that Philadelphia, the, 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 the city of brotherly love. And there's, there's um, eros, which is erotic love, sexual love. But there's also another word called agape love. And it, it's, it's, it's slightly different from phileo. But it's a word that means that whatever the circumstances, I will love you. It's the word that's used to describe God's love for us. And whatever happens, whatever you're going through, God will love you. It's the word that's described the way a man should love his wife. Because there are days when you simply don't feel like being in love. But you commit yourself that whatever the circumstances, you will love that person. So Peter... So when Jesus speaks to Peter, he uses agape. Peter, do you love me? And, and the word is, of course, in all circumstances. But Peter uses his response as a different word. He uses filio. He's not saying, I don't love you, Lord. He's saying, I love you with a, a, a deep affection. But I wonder, I wonder, is he saying? But, but you know something? When things were really tough, when they asked me, do you know this man? I said, no, I couldn't aspire to that. That's too deep for me. And Jesus said to him, Peter, feed my lamb. Feed, feed my sheep. Feed, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. And then he repeats it, and he uses the same term. Peter, agape, do you love me? Peter replies, filio. He replies the same way. Eventually, Jesus flips it on its head, and he says, well, Peter, do you love me? And he uses the same word that Peter, Peter uses. And he's trying to get across the whole idea of, of this passionate love for Jesus. The third time I said he changes it to filio. And it's almost like, well, do you even love me like filio? And, and, and there's, a, there's a real sense of, of, uh, of God, Jesus doing something. But he asks that question, uh, do you love me? And then, of course, what he's saying is, do you, well, if you love me, I haven't finished with you yet. Do you love Jesus? 
Great question, isn't it? So, so we, we, in, our, in our Western society, we, we might say, do you follow Jesus? Are you a Christ follower? And uh, I, I've started to, to do it, certainly, in, in the circles that I move in. If somebody asked me what, what I do, I said, well, I try and explain the Bible to people and explain how much Jesus loves them. And that's usually a conversation starter, to be honest with you. But the question that Jesus asks us, and asks Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? I, I went to do a week of Bible teaching at a Bible college many years ago in the Netherlands, and um, I met a girl there, and she, she had uh, graduated from Bible school in Australia, and she said they'd invited a man called Edward Miller to come and give the prizes out. And Edward Miller, most of you have never heard of him, but in the late 40s and 50s, he saw this incredible revival in Argentina. And they had heard about it, and they were so excited. But of course, by the time he got over in the mid-70s, he was a very old man. And when he came off the plane, he was on a, 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 a Zimmer frame. And so the day came for the prize distribution. She said there was about five or 600 there. The mayor was there of the, of the town. And uh, the place was packed, and eventually they gave the prizes out, and they got Edward Miller up to speak. And Edward Miller got up, shuffled up to the podium, and he stood there, and he looked down at them, and he said to them, Do you love Jesus? And then he said it again, Do you love Jesus? And then he said again, Do you love Jesus? She said he did it for 11 minutes. The only thing he said. And, of course, they, were, they, were, they went from, that's a good start, to, we need to rugby tackle him off that. You know, could we get the ejector seat in and get that man out of here? Please faint. Please die on the platform so we can get somebody else up there. But she says, by the time he got to the 11th minute, she said there was one of the graduates sitting in the front, great big guy, and she said his shoulders started to heave, and she thought, oh no, he's laughing. But he wasn't laughing, he was crying. And she said, within two minutes... A wave of tears went over that room as he kept on asking, do you love Jesus? What would your response be to the fact that Jesus loves you? What will it be today and what will it be tomorrow? And the question is, do you love Jesus? I wonder what Peter, what Peter felt. Um, you know, he was in, he denied the Lord and you know, he could have found it difficult to forgive himself. He could have justified himself. I was afraid. I was in difficulty. I was feeling hopeless. And, and the reality is that often we deny the Lord, both by our words and our actions. But isn't this a wonderful picture of how Jesus draws us close and simply wants to reestablish restoration again and to establish the fact that not only does he love you, but he wants to know that if you love him, he wants you to know that he hasn't finished with you. God has a purpose for your life. Isn't that incredible? God, God has something still for you to do. I, I, I love it. I, I wonder, did Peter feel guilty and ashamed? Did he feel shame? They, they say guilt, guilt is, let me give you a dictionary. Uh, guilt is the objective reality of being liable to punishment because of something that you've done. But it says, shame is a subjective feeling of being worthless because of who you are. 
I'll do it again in a different way. Guilt is acknowledging and what you feel when you've done something wrong. Shame is what you feel about yourself even when you haven't done anything wrong. And people carry both. They carry guilt because of what they have and haven't done. The wonderful news of the gospel is this, that Jesus removes your guilt. Any guilt that you had were nailed to our Savior on the cross. And if you say yes to him, your guilt is removed. But people carry shame. In 1945, my mother got, found herself pregnant at 16. Now, she's, she's with the Lord now, so I'm, I can tell you this now. It wasn't me. I have an older brother, Raymond. Passed away last year. But my mother never got over the shame. And as she lay dying, she said to me, Paul, Granny appeared to me last night. She'd had a vision. You know, not a vision, a hallucination. She was... And I said, what did Granny say to you? And she said, she told me I was a disgrace. For 86 years, well, 70 of those years, my mom carried that shame. I love it because here's what Peter writes in his epistle. He says, see, I lay in Zion a chosen precious cornerstone, Jesus, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. You don't need to, you don't need to live with guilt and shame. Why? Because Christ bore your guilt and he bore your shame. He bore the shame of being stripped naked and nailed to a cross. They, they tried to attempt to disgrace him and humiliate him. But he bore our shame. And when you put your trust in Jesus, something changes. The love of God floods your heart and your soul. You're right with God. You realize that God wants to use you, and he takes away the guilt, and he takes away the shame. Wouldn't that be incredible? To live in the reality of that changes your life. And Jesus wanted Peter to know that the guilt was removed, the shame was removed. Peter, I love you, and I want to use you in a proper way. I want you to be useful to me in the kingdom of God. There's a great difference between guilt and shame. And it's simply this. Your life does matter to God. You may have made a mistake, but you're not a mistake. You're of infinite worth to God. You may have, you may have failed in some things, but you're not a failure. The value that God puts on your heart and upon your life is of inestimable worth. And Jesus Christ wants you to know that this morning. What is this church all about? What is this church all about? You know what it's about? It's about telling people that there's a God who loves them, that sent his son to die for them. And when they come into that encounter with Jesus, their life will begin to be transformed. Peter, of course, has grown cold at the fires. Let remember, a sign of the natural 
a sign in the spiritual. And of course, the reality is that sometimes hearts grow cold and we try to warm ourselves at other fires. And I wonder, uh, was Jesus trying to subtly remind Peter that night about another fire? I, I love it because the one thing I've discovered in my life is this, that Jesus is able to warm your heart again. When your heart's grown cold, there's no one who can warm it like Christ. When you come back and you say yes to him, it's always a love issue, isn't it? Peter asked him three times if he loved him to the point where Peter felt hurt. Peter, Jesus knew that Peter denied him three times, and he gave him the opportunity to declare his love three times. And I think there's something very powerful about being in a love relationship with Jesus. I finished by telling you a story, and, and it's simply this. It's, uh, I, I did a, I, I'm not, I, I was poor at it, but I did a bit of Greek and Latin in, in my day, in my studies. I was hopeless at it, honestly. But one of the things I, I, when I was, uh, when I was uh, doing Greek was that I, I managed to stumble across Homer and his two poetic works, the Iliad and the, the Odyssey. And uh, there's two stories in it I think are really powerful, actually. And they're about Jason and the Argonauts. You remember that crazy film that came about about 40 years ago, Jason and the Argonauts? Well, there, there's, they were on their way back from the uh, Trojan War. Stay with me here. It gets better, okay? Stay with me. Okay. And uh, there was a man called Odysseus. And he was sailing a ship and, and going back home again. Ten, there were 10 years wandering. But he had to go past this island. And it was the island of the Sirens. And they were a, 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 a mystical, mythical, female-like type beings who sang the most beautiful songs. And what they did was as, as the ships would go by, they would sing their songs and lure them onto the rocks. So Orpheus knew that he had to do it. So what he did was he poured beeswax into his sailors' ears so they couldn't hear. And he got his men to lash him to the mast. And he said, no matter what happens, no matter how much I, I beg you or order you, do not untie me when we're sailing past that island. And so, of course, as they sailed past, he heard the voice. He, he said, let me go. We need to get to the island. But, of course, they can't hear because they've got beeswax in their ears. And they safely went by. But when Jason went, but when Jason knew he was going, he brought with him Orpheus. Orpheus was the most famous poet and musician in the world. And instead of, instead of, pouring, uh, instead of pouring beeswax in the men's ears and lashing themselves to the mast, uh, what Jason did was he said, Orpheus, play a better tune. He said, Orpheus, play a sweeter tune. So Orpheus began to play, and in the background you could hear the sirens, but, but Orpheus, his incredible ability to play was so powerful that the men were entranced by the playing of Orpheus. Now, I hope you get the analogy. The analogy is simply this, that Jesus plays a better song. And if our hearts ultimately aren't captivated by him, we'll hear another song, and it'll draw us off. That's why it's entirely right to use that word, do you love Jesus? If your heart is captivated by the man who hung on the middle cross for you, and on a daily basis, 
you're drawn after him and you say yes to him on a daily basis, his song will be louder and sweeter and more beautiful than any other song that you hear. Because if he's not at the center of it, ultimately, you'll go back. Do you love Jesus? I ask myself that every day this year. Every day this year. Paul, do you love Jesus? And the answer is a resounding yes. And again, as I close, I ask you that question. Do you love Jesus? Wouldn't this be a great day to take that first step and say yes? Yes to Christ. Don't know all that it means, but I'm saying yes to him. I'm saying yes to Jesus because I know that he loves me. He removes my guilt and my shame and has a purpose for my life. Hope you enjoyed the podcast today. I hope it encouraged you. There's a few things I'd love you to do. I'd love you to subscribe to our YouTube, iTunes, or Spotify account. This is so you can keep up with our most recent material and messages. If this ministry has impacted your life and you'd love to help us reach others, you can do that right now by going to ariachurch.org and giving now. Cannot wait to see you next week on the Ariat Church podcast.